It isn't often that a writer, or any man, is given an opportunity to destroy a figure he's always hated, a character that all his life has cluttered his landscape like a slum. And to be able to do so, and get paid for it to boot, is to be doubly blessed. My hated figure is the Western hero who rides along, thumping his guitar, nasally singing a synthetic ballad, and looking for all the world like a fugitive from a cheap circus. I spit in his milk, and he'll have to go elsewhere to find somebody to pour the lead for his golden bullets. Friday, December 31st, 1948. We're celebrating New Year's Eve at the home of Jack and Mary Benny. The cast and crew are all here with their families, having a great time. was a monumental year for the broadcasting industry. By year-end, radios were in 37.6 million U.S. homes and another 11 million U.S. cars. Network radio revenue was more than $210 million, or over $2 billion today. Entertainers working in radio operating as independent contractors had to give the government 77% of all income over $70,000. Big stars were making big money, but seeing very little of it. Jack Benny recently organized himself as a corporation and is now eligible to be taxed as capital gains and therefore at the much lower rate of 25%. He sold his corporation to CBS for $2.26 million. Just before Christmas on December 23rd, William Paley and CBS 
broadcast a closed-circuit press conference to their staff, announcing Benny Switch from NBC. In this special closed-circuit broadcast to the managers and staffs of all CBS stations, Mr. Paley has asked that he might be the first to speak to you. Gentlemen, Mr. Paley. I have asked to speak first so that I might have the pleasure of introducing Jack Benny. In a few moments, we'll pick up Jack Benny and Amos and Andy, too, speaking in Hollywood. But before we do that, I want to take the opportunity to say something else. It is in many ways, I think, the most significant thing I could say here, and that CBS, in fact, can say to the world. It is not about the developments of the past few weeks which have happily resulted in bringing Benny to CBS so soon after Amos and Andy. We all can see what this means to our Sunday night schedule and to our competitive strength and prestige as a network. But I'm thinking of something more important. It's the network Jack Benny is coming to, the network we are today. CBS is now the leader, today, not tomorrow. That is what I take deepest pride in as I talk to you, in the fact that CBS today, all of you, already have the largest audiences in all radio, day and night, the largest individual audiences, the largest average audiences. This is an achievement of which you can be particularly proud. It couldn't have happened without your management and your facilities, without your own great status in the community. December 26th was Jack's last NBC show. His first CBS show since 1933 is tomorrow evening, January 2nd. So I moved, and I didn't want to leave NBC. I loved NBC. But I had to make some kind of a deal where I could make some money, because here I was getting a terrific salary, and was all salary. And I couldn't make a deal for a company. Well, I wouldn't care if I got a million dollars a week. That wouldn't do me any good. What good would that be? With income the tax, tax that right, was sure. Right. So the ones that made me the deal and came right through with it quick was CBS. Then, of course, when NBC realized I was going to go, then they were willing to make the deal. But I didn't want to play one against the other, so I merely took CBS. In January of 1949, the Jack Benny program will earn a rating of 28.3 for CBS, the highest on the air. Spurred on by his success in favorable terms, in the fall of 1949, Burns and Allen, Red Skelton, Bing Crosby, and Edgar Bergen will all jump to CBS. In the spring of 1948, NBC was broadcasting 16 of the top 20 highest-rated programs. By the spring of 1950, it will be CBS with 15 of the top 20 highest-rated shows. And television is coming. Three new TV stations began operation in 1948. More than 10,000 new homes turned on TVs. In January of 1949, another 50 stations were under construction. Television's momentum will soon explode, and more than one million homes will be watching. And as CBS, NBC, and ABC 
moved into the television era. It will be CBS who will control early TV. As Jack Benny's network move rippled through the entertainment landscape on New Year's Day, 1949. Then when I moved over, a lot of shows moved over. So that made really CBS come up on top. I made the million CBS by that move. Happy New Year! Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 87. My name is James Scully. Today, we'll examine some of what was on the air from New Year's Day in radio's past. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show on every podcast platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's theme song is the Mondo Exotic of Voodoo Dreams by Les Baxter who comes straight out of the era of tonight's story. Today, on January 1st, 2019, it's safe to say this podcasting industry is no longer just a voodoo dream. As of this past June, 124 million people have listened to a podcast, and 50% of all U.S. homes are podcast fans. Podcast listeners hear a weekly average of seven shows. There's been a 10% annual consumption rise, and smartphone podcast listening has increased 157% since 2014. More new audio shows are launching now in the U.S. than at any point since the golden age of radio. And along those lines, news, trailers, dialogues, and more from our new audio drama series, Burning Gotham which will take place in 1835 New York City, will begin this winter. So, if you're on Facebook, join the Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch. And if you're listening via iTunes, give the show a quick rating. It only takes a moment, and the more people who do, the more people who will be able to discover Breaking Walls. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Was Ed Wynn that actually, and I don't know, he bought a newspaper from no, you? No, I was selling boy? newspapers. I was uh, nine years old at the time on the corner of Fifth and Main in Vincennes, Indiana. This gentleman came up and he said, what are they doing in this town for excitement? And I said, well, there's a big New York road show in town tonight with a comedian. Ed Wynn is his name. I said, there's his name up there. It was right across from the theater. And I said, that's what I'm going to do when I get older. I'm going to try to make people laugh, you know. So he says, are you going to see the show tonight? I said, no, I don't have that kind of money. He says, I know the manager of the theater. If you come down, I'll see that you get in. I said, well, i got to sell my papers. So I had three papers left, and he gave me a dollar. And papers were only three cents a piece in those days. Ooh. And if you tore the headline and the name of the paper off at the top, you take it back. You had to buy the paper for a cent and a half, eh? Right. And uh, you had to buy two or three papers at a time. So I'd buy them and sell them. But if you turn the headline back in, they give you, you give your money paper, back. Right? See, they give you money back. So I went home and I told my mother, and I gave her the dollar, and she gave me a dime. She's now you come right straight home. So I went down to the theater, and I didn't know if he'd be there or not. She gave me a dime, a nickel for popcorn and nickel for car fare on the way home. So I go down, and here's this man standing in front of the theater, and I said, well, he's a nice fella, see? 
So I'm sitting in the balcony. All of a sudden, a body comes through the curtain. And I look real close. I said to the people around me, that's my friend down there. He got me this. I said, no, he got me my seat here. I said, they were trying to push me down. So at the um, intermission, I ran from the balcony down backstage. And all the stagehands knew I was stage struck anyhow because I hung around. He says, get out of here. And he was standing there. He says, no, no. He says, let him in. Let him in. You remember Edwin and all? Is that how we talked? Yes. He said, here, come in, come in, come in. <laughs> he had great jokes. Like he said, hello. He always carried a telephone with him. Hello. I'm over at Cabeze. Cabeze. CBS. Cabeze. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you want to come over and see me? You know how to get here? You come down Sunset, you turn on Fairfax. Fairfax is the Jewish neighborhood in Los Angeles. He says, you come down Fairfax, and you go by all the stores, and when you come to one that doesn't have a salami hanging in the window, that is to be. <laughs> so he says to me, he says, how do you like the show? I says, fine. So he says, you ever seen an audience before? I says, no. So he held me up to the asbestos curtain. They had an, a curtain used to come down. For fire, fire regulations, cases, yeah. fire regulations. So I held me up, and I saw the audience coming back in, and I fell in love with them. Was that your first That's audience? That's my family. That's been my family all these years. So he says to me, he says to me, he says, those are called border lights up there. Those are the border lights. He says, in front of the curtain, there's lights. They call footlights, footlights. So you want to be a comedian, huh? Well, remember, yes, do comedy. Always say funny things. Not only say funny things, do funny things. But when you say things, say them funny. See? From Hollywood, the Raleigh Cigarette Program, starring Red Skelton with David Forrester and his orchestra, Gigi Pearson, Verna Felton, our singing star, Anita Ellis, Pat McGee, and our guest, Wonderful Smith, and yours truly, Rod O'Connor. Red Skelton took to the air on WEAF in New York on the evening of Tuesday, January 1st, 1946, at 10.30 p.m. He barely had time to find a place to live after being discharged from the Army in September of 1945. Skelton's new Raleigh Cigarettes program debuted from Hollywood the previous month and quickly became the third highest rated show on the air, peaking at 21.3 ratings points. Thank you and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Red. Well, happy New Year to you, too. And happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year to you. <laughs> well, we've kicked that around enough for this year. <laughs> well, how'd you bring the New Year in? I had nothing to do with it. I woke up this morning and there it was. <laughs> you know, well, during the last year, a lot of waters passed over the dam. Yeah, in sunny California, too. <laughs> a lot of people got soaked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really an eventful 365 Wasn't days, you know. Dope. The war ended, a lot yeah. of the boys came back from overseas, yeah. rationing was stopped. Dick Tracy went on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder what the new year has in store for us. Butter, I hope. I... <laughs> Say, did you hear the Oklahoma-St. Mary's game today, right? Yes, and it was really exciting. I was sitting in front of my radio, and I could just picture Bing Crosby... Crosby... <laughs> <laughs> Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman sitting on the 50-yard line ringing their bells for the home team. 
Wasn't Hollywood Boulevard crowded? Yeah, last night, you mean. The mm-hmm. old street was creeping. <laughs> yeah, the New Year's festivities were really rollicking. Yeah, you said it. People were climbing up those Christmas trees like monkeys. <laughs> they had to give me a banana before I'd come down. <laughs> Four guys got arrested for jay staggering last night. <laughs> oh, hey, there was one fellow walked into a into a um, a place and he says to the bartender, a marine, he says, "Here, I got a present for you." He says, "I got a present for you." <laughs> a live lobster here. A live lobster. <laughs> so the bartender says, "Well, thanks a lot." He says, "I'll take it home to eat." <laughs> the guy says, "Oh, don't do that. Take him to a movie. He's already eaten." <laughs> one study estimated that skeleton got blasts every eleven seconds. He was so supercharged that he couldn't do an audience warm-up because every time he did, he left the crowd limp with laughter instead of primed for the main event. He reversed the trend and gave his fans an aftershow, then considered amongst other comedians the hottest act in comedy. Same to you, Red. Say, tell me, uh, how did you see the new year in? Oh, I spent the evening with my mother. Oh. No other girl can make that statement. <laughs> That is still breathing. <laughs> I enjoyed it, Red. We listened to the radio and really had a wonderful time. Really? There was only one thing wrong. Why? Just as I got to bed about 12.30, some crazy fellow started pounding at my door. Why, I could have killed him. Gee, that's awful. What did you do? I nearly got killed. <laughs> Say, did you make any New Year's resolutions, Rod? Oh, I certainly did. You know, I resolved to be more helpful to people. You know, sort of a two-tone, a ton, <laughs> Mr. Anthony, huh? Skelton's Raleigh Cigarettes program would air on NBC until May 20th, 1949. The following autumn, he shifted to CBS with many other stars. By the autumn of 1951, Skelton was starring on TV, where he'd remain for 20 years. You did, I don't know how many shows the Red Skelton show was on, how many... But 20 consecutive years. You own the rights to all of those tapes, and yes. you made the statement that you may ask for them to be burned upon your demise. No. no. Good. No, I'll tell you what that was all about. I play a lot of colleges, right. and the college students, they ask all the time, when are we going to see your reruns? Oh, see? yeah. So this one day I go in, and uh, they were talking about art, I go into colleges, I go in residence for three days. Each day I give talks with questions and answers. First day is political science, propaganda, and communications. Second day is religions. Third day is theatrical arts. So these students ask, they says, did you read about that Indian out in Arizona that burned all of his paintings? Because they were going to charge whatever he char- uh, sold the last painting for. In case he died, that would be paid to the government. So he burned all of those paintings. So then someone says, what are you going to do when you don't release your paintings? I said, I'll do what the Indian did. See? That's how this started. Oh. Nothing was said. And about a year later, someone says, uh, I understand that you're going to burn your reruns. So I said, uh-oh, I've created an interest now. They're interested. You know. I got their attention. Huh? I've got their attention. I says, yeah, yeah, that's what I'll do. If they don't release them before I die, they say, how do you know when you're going to die? I said, I'll put it in my will. Lasting freshness. Thank you, gentlemen. And now it's time for Anita Ellis to answer a musical question. How deep is the ocean? As radio drama's audiences waned, 
The Skelton Show would return to NBC for one final season in the autumn of 1952, before going off the air on May 26, 1953. And this was really the beginning of the end for radio as we knew it, John. Did you recognize that early? Oh, yes. Yes. For example, I remember going out to Chicago to record a show with Jimmy Durante and Don Amici when they were happened to be in Chicago and, you know, close enough so that I could go out by train and spend the night and then come back the next night. Mm -hmm. Coming through Pennsylvania at this time, I noticed these houses all with the television antennas everywhere you looked and I suddenly realized I better get out of radio because here it is even out here like Johnstown and places like that the houses uh, way down the valley had tall antennas and the ones up high had short ones but they were everywhere and all of a sudden uh, radio was slackening up and uh, whether you like television or not you had to get into it if you wanted to keep on working. That was John Gibson, who had parts in numerous radio shows, including a steady one as Ethelbert on Casey, Crime Photographer. We put Crime Photographer on at CBS when I don't think more than 20 people saw it. <laughs> but it, we worked as hard as if it had been a, for an audience of 100 million. It was a half-hour telecast done very legitimately, and it was in 1945, and that was my first... One of the executives at CBS called me back a few days later and he said, we've decided we'd like to do a series of this on television. And I said, well, good, let me know when it's on. I'd like to watch it. <laughs> and that was my attitude. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> By the late 1940s, Crime Photographer had established itself as a primetime show. During the 1947-48 season, it's Thursday at 9.30 p.m. time slot from CBS in New York had a rating of 15.6. It starred Stats Cotsworth as Casey, and in 1948, was sponsored by Anchor Hawking. CBS's Anchor Hawking announcer was Tony Marvin. Years later, Marvin recalled the interview process and getting hired by CBS. Well, it was murder. <laughs> it was absolute murder. After all, you know, in those days, I think even today, of course, why should it change? when an announcer has an opportunity to come down and audition for the big networks. Well, you know you were really in the big leagues, and they had an announcer's audition that took at least 45 minutes to an hour. And you had to have a minimum of three to five years' experience in the field prior to that. You had to have a working knowledge of two other languages, primarily French, German, because you did a lot of symphonic work. You did operatic work, and you also had to be fast on your feet. They'd lock you in a studio after you'd gone through a list of things from Mussorgsky to Beethoven and all the rather esoteric types of symphonic and operatic music, and you had to be conversant with that. 
And then they say, all right, now you have 10 minutes. We want you to describe the studio in minute detail, just what it is in there, just what you think. If you were locked in this room for 10 minutes, how would you uh, occupy or tell someone about the cell you're incarcerated in, you know? <laughs> and then after that, of course, then they gave you news that you read cold. It was just handed to you, now go. When you got through, you knew that you had been put through a bit of a ringer. In my case, I was called into the production office. They said, well, you've been accepted, and you will start on such and such a date. And I remember I almost fainted because I was going to become a member of the CBS staff. And I still love CBS. After all, it's my alma mater. I remember dashing to the nearest phone booth and calling my wife and saying, Honey, guess what? I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful uh, it really, Yes, it was. It was marvelous. I'll never forget it. And, of course, the money was magnificent. That's right. They yeah, paid right. big money in those days for well, staff work. I want to tell you, when you were a staff announcer at CBS or NBC in those days, you were rolling in wealth. You started out at $50 a week. <laughs> And if you were a good boy and did your job well, at the end of five years, you now got $75 a week. The January 1st, 1948 episode of Casey Crime Photographer involves an arson, manslaughter, and a kidnapping, all taking place in the wee hours of the morning on New Year's Day. The Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation brings you Crime Photographer. Happy New Year, Casey. Happy New Year, Ethelbert. Same to you, Marvin. Say, you know this 1948 is going to be a great year. Why so? Well, don't you know? It's leap year. And just what can leap year mean to you? Why, I'm surprised at you, Ethelbert. Don't you know that that means an extra Thursday? No what? No what? That extra Thursday gives me an extra chance to say that Anchor Hawking is the most famous name in class. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Marvin. Every week at this time, the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation of Lancaster, Ohio, and its more than 10,000 employees bring you another adventure of Casey, crime photographer, ace cameraman who covers the crime news of a great city. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole, our adventure for tonight, Hot New Year's Party. And to some people, that hour on that day can be very bleak and dismal. Ethelbert, the uh, head bartender of the Blue Note Cafe, is obviously not one of those unfortunate. For we find him in the morning. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Hi, Walter. Yeah, uh, Bring up two more bottles of aspirin. They're going to be our best sellers today. Okay. Oh, what a beautiful... Well, look who's here. Happy New Year, Casey. And the same to you, Miss Williams. Hmm. What's the matter with you two? Ask Walter to bring us a couple of cups of coffee, pal. 
Strong and black. Uh-uh. And slip me an aspirin tablet. Make that a double order. Uh-huh. Hey, Walter, draw two. Come on up. What's Hermit Chittison doing here? Practicing at this hour in the morning? He couldn't get home on account of the snow. He slept here all night. Oh. Here's some special headache medicine for you to stay out all night. We haven't been stay out all night. I know. Like good, sensible folks, you left the party early, just before daylight. And then you got all of an hour's sleep before you had to come to work on an 8 a.m. shift. He's a wise guy, Annie. Yeah. You should have been like me. I wasn't on duty last night, but did I spend my leisure time in idle revelry? I did not. At 12 o'clock, my sister Edna and me wished one another a happy new year over a glass of good, healthful milk. Then I retired and enjoyed a fine, refreshing sleep. So, on this beautiful morning, you find me full of vim, vigor, and vitamins. Have another aspirin on the house. Shall I kill this guy quickly and... Listen, vim, vigor, and vitamins, the reason Miss Williams and I feel beat up is that ever since a few minutes after we reported for work this morning, we've been inhaling smoke. Smoke? There was Smoke. another warehouse fire this morning, near Chatham Circle. That's the only New Year's party we've attended, and it was a red-hot one, too. Bad fire, huh? Yeah, plenty bad. Oh, here's Walter with our coffee. Oh, thanks, Walter. Happy New Year. <laughs> Boys are welcome, too. Thanks, Walter. Okay. Your papers kind of hinted that them warehouse fires lately have been arson jobs, Miss Williams. Oh, we're morally certain of it, Ethelbert, and that Jake Schultz is the man behind them. He and his mob make a deal with the owners of them places to split the fire insurance, huh? That's right. That's the racket. Mm. Skinny Jake Schultz is a pretty smart cookie, I hear. Neither the cops or the fire inspectors has ever got anything on him. Yeah, well, if he's behind the torch job we just covered, he isn't so smart. And this one lets somebody in for a hot seat rap. What do you mean? Well, the fire was set at night and there was a human being in the building, an old watchman. That means arson in the first degree. The watchman got out all right, but a fireman was killed by falling timbers. And when death is caused through commission of first-degree arson, it becomes first-degree murder. And a reliable witness says that he saw three men run out of the warehouse a few minutes before the fire was discovered. He's uh, given the police a first-class description of them. Was one of them Schultz? No, of course not. Dick doesn't do any firebug stuff himself. If one of those three guys is caught and sings, uh, it's just going to be too bad for his boss, man. Annie, how about some more coffee? Mm-mm, no, we don't have time, Casey. That's We've right. got to get out to Barstow College. Well, there's no hurry about that. Yes, we don't there know. is. City Desk wants the dope on Professor Wendell right away. Well, who's Professor Wendell and what, what's he doing? Oh, he's a teacher at Barstow College. He went for a walk last night and he hasn't come back. Uh, now, the professor who shares an apartment with Wendell's just reported his disappearance to the Missing Persons Bureau. Oh, he thinks the guy has met with foul play? That's right. Well, if we must, we must, Danny. Come on, let's get started at Professor Gerber's place. But this Professor Gerber's the one who reported the mysterious vanishing of this Professor Wendell. That's huh? right. After we waste our time with him, Wendell will undoubtedly show up with a perfectly good reason for staying out all night. Well, I'm perfectly willing to waste time on such cases today. I'd like to start the new year safely and sanely. Me too, Annie, me too. To establish a precedent for 1948, no jams and no trouble... Nothing but peace, sweetness, and light. <laughs> Instead of just a hope, why don't you two make that a New Year's resolution? Well, that's a good idea, pal. Oh, excellent. We here highly resolve... That for the coming year... And starting now... No jams... No trouble... Nothing but peace, sweetness, and light. One of the women who starred alongside Stats Cotsworth as Miss Ann Williams 
was the New York radio and TV legend Jan Miner, who also starred on NBC's Radio City Playhouse. Harry W. Junkin came down from Canada, and he was hired by NBC by Tom McRae, who used to be here at WTIC. And he had some marvelously original scripts, and he was a director as well. We had a 50-piece orchestra, and it was the most exciting show to do in radio. We really got a tremendous kick out of it. He was very specific about what he wanted, and he wouldn't let us just die with a little sob or a little groan of breath. He would have you running all over 8-H in New York with screams, and he'd say, I want two and a half minutes of screaming as you fall off that cliff, and you screamed for two and a half minutes, red in the face and running. Mr. McRae, who was here at WTIC, went to New York during the war and then joined NBC. And when he hired this man from Canada, he called and said, Jan, there's a series coming up that is fantastic. You get in there and audition. So I went in and auditioned. And there were a great many girls auditioning, of course, but at the same time, there were a lot of them that didn't audition. They didn't know about it. So it was through having as my boss here at Hartford that mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to go and even audition for the program. The National Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse, Attraction 67, Reflection, as written and directed by Harry W. Junkin. Radio City Playhouse first came to the NBC airwaves on July 3, 1948, from New York. It specialized in high-octane stories of adventure, often turning on life-and-death situations with strong male-female roles. This episode, which aired at 5 p.m. on WNBC in New York on New Year's Day, 1950, was called Reflection. It was a story of a lifelong friendship which began on New Year's Day in 1918. Thank you, Fred, and a very happy New Year to everyone. Since the past is composed entirely of memories, and since the future has not yet happened, the present, perhaps, is... Nothing more than a nostalgic mingling of the two elements. Our story today concerns the past and the present of three very nice people. Their present, of course, like yours, is today, this day, New Year's Day, 1950. Here is Jan Miner as Ann Stratton with Bryna Rayburn and Bob Haig in Reflection, Attraction 67 on Radio City Playhouse. It's been a perfect New Year's Day, but I'm going home. Oh, Maud, don't rush. Yes, stay for a while. Now, you're not that tired. I find your grandchildren rather exhausting. (laughs) Was rather hectic, wasn't it? Mm. I think everybody had a good time. Uh, It's so wonderfully quiet now. Just the three of us together. 1950. 1950. Hard to believe, isn't it? How long has it been, Maud? Thirty-two years. It's a long time for three people to be friends. Yes, it's a very long time. But here we are again. Maud and Peter and I. This is the 32nd time we've wished each other Happy New Year. I remember the first New Year's. It was 1918. 
You sailed for France that day, Peter. And I remember how bleak it was and how miserable I felt. We'd been married eight days, and then you sailed for France. That was the day I met you, Maud. After his boat left, I wandered around in the rain, then went into some horrible, steamy little restaurant to have some coffee and get warm. And there you were, sitting at the table. Excuse me, would you pass the salt, please? Thank you. Oh, anything wrong? No. Oh, no. I suspect that what you need, dearie, is a drink. Women who eat all alone in third-rate restaurants on New Year's Day should get extremely drunk. No, it's just the, the rain and... Oh, look here, I'm sorry. Oh, it's none of my business. I'm just the gabby type. I didn't mean to pry. Doesn't matter. Is it somebody in the war? My husband. Oh, I am sorry. I get used to it, I suppose. Oh, had, had you been married long? Eight days. Oh, then he isn't dead. Oh, no. He isn't dead. Oh, why do you say oh like that? Well, I thought it was really something serious. Serious? If you'd be married for eight days and your husband went away to war, how would you feel about it? Pretty badly, I suppose. Hand me the sugar. Well, if you haven't been married, you can't imagine how you... You're not married, are you? No. Well, then. I'm a widow. Oh. He was in the first contingent. He was killed. Killed? Oh, no. Oh, for goodness sake, stop blubbering all over everything. <laughs> there are lots of other wives in the same case. How dare you talk to me like that? Who do you think you are? But I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm simply saying that there's no use bawling about it, especially in public. What do you do, anyway? Do? You work? No, no, I don't. Where are you from? Boston. You lived with your parents? An aunt. Going back to Boston? I guess so. I don't want to, but what else can I do? Work. But I've never worked in my life. I've no experience. You've got style. You're good-looking. Know anything about clothes? Oh, no. Don't, don't answer me. You only know how to buy them, not sell them. Oh, incidentally, my name's Maud Arnett. <laughs> I'm Ann Stratton. Well, how do you do, Ann? And Happy New Year. Reflection was the 72nd and final episode of the Radio City Playhouse. Although its stories were packed with humanizing dialogue and strong narrative, the show had failed to attain a sponsor. So many, many New Year's Days, now with grandchildren. They were a little tiring, weren't they? We're back where we started now, Mary with her own family, Susan away at school, and the three of us getting slightly old. New Year's Day, 1950. 32 years of saying Happy New Year, and we really mean so much more. I wish we could find the words. Or I wish I could. Peter, the fire's out. Mm. Well, so it is. Anne, you're practically asleep. No, not asleep. I've just been thinking with my eyes shut. I was thinking how long we've known each other. Oh, what a depressing thought. Maud. Peter? Yes. What, dear? Happy New Year. <laughs>
You have just heard Reflection, Attraction 67 on Radio City Playhouse. Jan Miner starred as Ann Stratton. Maud was Bryna Rayburn. Peter was Bob Haig. Other members of the cast included Rosemary Rice, Bill Lipton, and Joan Laser. The music was composed by Dr. Roy Shield and conducted by Norman Clotier. The script was written, directed, and produced by Harry W. Junkin. Director and narrator, Harry W. Junkin, closed the final broadcast with this beautifully poignant note. This is Harry Junkin again. On behalf of our cast, our engineer, Monroe J. Lawrence, our sound technician, John Powers, Norman Clotier and the men in the orchestra, all of us connected with Radio City Playhouse, sincere good wishes for the best of everything in the coming year. Good afternoon, everybody. What's on NBC tonight? Radio's outstanding dramatic program, Theater Guild on the Air, presents While the Sun Shines, starring Peter Lawford and Arthur Margitson. Following Theater Guild, keep tuned for the American album of familiar music. Both are part of your great NBC Sunday. This is Fred Collins speaking. And now stay tuned for James Melton and Harvest of Stars on NBC. By January of 1950, television had begun to cut into radio's ratings. During the 48-49 radio season, six shows had ratings of 20 points or higher. The Lux Radio Theater was radio's highest rated show at 25.5. The next year, Lux was still tops, but lost over a million listeners. And only two shows, Lux and the Jack Benny program, had ratings higher than a 20. However, radio in 1950 was still far from dead while NBC had failed to hook a sponsor for its in-house drama anthology. CBS had no such trouble for one of its new situation comedies. My name was Eunice Quidens. Quidens. Mm-hmm. But I always hated the Eunice part of it. Then when I got to New York, I worked for Lee Schubert in the first Schubert Ziegfeld Follies that mm-hmm. Billy Burke produced after Ziegfeld had died. And... Lee Schubert said, we're going to put your name up on the marquee and we can't put Quidens on there, it's too long. So that's when I came up with Arden. I was waiting to go in and see him and he'd kind of given me a deadline on a name and I was reading a book and the heroine was Eve and I had a package of Elizabeth Arden's cosmetics (laughs) in my hand And I tried it out on him, and he liked it, and that was it. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. And Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Eve Arden broke into radio on The Danny Kaye Show in 1945 before co-starring with Jack Haley in 1946 and with Jack Carson on The Seal Test Village Store in 1947. None of the roles stuck 
and her interest in radio was at a low ebb. New Year's Eve. Well, like everyone else, our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, had looked forward to celebrating with considerable anticipation. But as the poet Robert Burns put it, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after glaze. I don't know about the men, but I'm certainly one of the mice Robbie had in mind, because last night somebody really ganged up on my glaze. It came about rather strangely. I was in New York doing some publicity for the studio. On the way back, I stopped in Chicago and stayed at the Ambassador Hotel with some friends. Not if you come to my party tonight. What kind of a party are you having, Mrs. Davis? Very quiet, Connie. Having dinner one night, I was introduced to William Paley. And he asked me to dance, and he loved to dance, and so did I. So we kind of hit it off very well. Barney the bartender from Mulligan's Saloon. And I think that was the beginning, because about a week later, I was called by CBS and asked to make a record for Armis Brooks. And I wasn't very interested in doing it. And I read the first script, and... I said, I really don't think that this is funny enough and that I really want to do it. And Harry Ackerman, who was the producer, said, we have two new writers we're putting on it this week, and if you'll have dinner with me in another week, I think you'll find it much improved. I don't remember that at all, Connie. I do. It started a run in my dress. <laughs> but then I said, I'm taking my children to New York for the summer, and if you'll make the 13, it was to go on as a summer replacement, mm -hmm. and if you'll make the 13 before we go, that'll be fine. So I did. When I got to New York, we went we're out in Connecticut with our dear friends. At the end of the summer, I got a call from Frank Stanton mm -hmm. of uh, Columbia, CBS, and he said, congratulations. And I said, what for? <laughs> and he said, Miss Brooks is the number one show on the air. Wow. <laughs> so from that moment on, but of course by then I adored Dick Crennan, Gail Gordon, and my darling Mrs. Davis, and there was no question but that I would go on with it. Mr. Boynton isn't the biggest spender in the world, is he, Connie? No, I think there's a Maharaja in India who spends eight or nine dollars a week more. <laughs> but after all, Mr. Boynton is a school teacher, and he probably just can't... Now, who can that be? Come on in, it's not locked. Finished with your cereal, Connie? Yes, thanks. Oh, good morning, Miss Brooks, Mrs. Davis. Hello, Mr. Boynton. Now, isn't that a coincidence, Mr. Boynton? I was just going to clear away the table and clear out. What's coincidental about that? Now she's got a good reason to. <laughs> exactly. See you later, folks. Take your time, dear. Well, Mr. Boynton, this is rather a surprise visit. Well, yes, Miss Brooks, I, I guess it is. Want a cup of coffee? All right. Keeps pretty hot in this percolator. There you are. Thank you. Well, that was fun. What'll we do now? Our Miss Brooks. First premiered on July 19, 1948, airing for almost nine years. The head writer and director was Al Lewis. I was living out here, and a man named Larry Burns, he was assigned to do the show out here as a comedy. And he got Eve Arden, 
and me about the same time. I met he talked to her, and then I did a show for them to put on in the summer, sustaining the time. I was a writer-director. We did a few shows, and, you know, people liked it. And then we got a spot. I can come right to the point without stalling. I hear you talking. I, uh, I don't have to mask my real intentions with a lot of pseudo-diplomacy. Never no pseudo-diplomacy. Well, what I'm trying to say, Miss Brooks, is that, well, several weeks ago, I, I promised to attend the Biologist Club New Year's Eve party at the Club Jamboree tonight. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun, Mr. Boynton. Oh, I'm sure it will be. But the ticket cost $5, Miss Brooks, and, well, I, I only had enough for the one when I bought it. And... <laughs> Well, well, since then, I, I've had some unexpected holiday expenses and just haven't been able to afford another one. Of course, I, I'd love to ask you to join me tonight, but I couldn't very well invite you to pay for your own ticket, could I? You could, but I couldn't. <laughs> the program co-star Jeff Chandler is Philip Winton, the bashful biology teacher and chief object of Miss Brooks's affection. Two whole weeks of eating. Gail Gordon played the Madison High School principal. Osgood Conklin. Jane Morgan played landlady Mrs. Margaret Davis. And Dick Crenna played student Walter Denton. And the show also featured Gloria McMillan, Mary Jane Croft, Gerald Moore, and Maurice Marsak. Same to you, Mr. Boynton. And thank you for a lovely morning. <laughs> That's all right, Miss Brooks. Now let's sing two choruses of Old Lang Syne, and this will be the earliest I've ever folded on New Year's Eve. This episode from Sunday, January 1st, 1950, was broadcast coast-to-coast coast on CBS at 6.30 p.m. Connie Brooks agrees to babysit Principal Conklin's son on New Year's Eve so she can pay for a ticket and accompany Philip Boynton afterwards at a science event. Of course, things don't work out as planned. They rarely do. I guess I'd better be running along now. Get cleaned up for the big night. Yes, you do that, Mr. Boyne. I've got to help Mrs. Davis with the dishes. Forgive me if I don't chase you, uh, walk you to the door. <laughs> Certainly. Well, see you next year, like they say. Don't take any wooden biologists. Eve Arden would take the show into television in 1952. Arden took most of her radio cast with her, with the exception of Jeff Chandler, who by then become a leading man in film. It was on radio five years, one of which overlapped... The four TV. years on television. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, that's something really very interesting about the transition from radio to television. A lot of the shows that were very well established on radio didn't make it on TV. And I think a lot of it was due to the fact that people who watched the show then saw people they couldn't relate to because they had their ideas of them in their own mind. Yet, with one exception, every member of the Armist Brooks radio cast moved into television. Yes, and the only one who didn't, as you know, was Jeff Chandler. And the reason for that was that Jeff had suddenly become a big motion picture star, plus he really wanted to do it with us. But he just physically, and when you looked at Jeff, you didn't believe he was the shy bumbling Mr. Boynton. Mm. Vocally, he did it. So Bob Rockwell was the perfect maybe, replacement maybe for him. him I'd love to let him have it. <laughs> uh, he's had quite enough, Mr. Boynton. Oh, say, here's a beautiful number. The Bells of St. Mary's. Oh, that is beautiful. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Boynton. Oh, before you answer it, Miss Brooks, I'd like you to know... I, I've changed my mind. I just can't stand the thought of you spending New Year's Eve alone, so, well, I'll call my friends and tell them not to expect me. That is, if you still want me to stay here with if you. If I still want you, Mr. Boynton, don't move from that spot. Be right there. If I still want him, he says. <laughs> Hi, it's us, 
Unfortunately, Jeff Chandler would pass away at the age of 42 in 1961 after a botched spinal herniation surgery led to blood poisoning. While we're talking about him, when I was coming along in the 50s and going to movies and seeing Jeff Chandler, he was really the epitome of tough male action. And I yeah. think I was somewhat shocked when I went back and started listening to Armis Brooks on tape <laughs> to find out what a real comedic talent this man was. Yes, yes, he was. He loved the show, though. He really wanted to go into TV with it. But he would never have done on TV because he was so macho in appearance. And I remember at Christmas, we always had to be careful because he had to kiss Miss Brooks. And he took it very seriously then. And the audience was kind of astounded. Hmm. And Bob Rockwell, of course, made it a very good Mr. Boynton because he was a little less macho than, than Jeff, and yet he had a nice male quality, you know. Oh, uh, you mean then the decision to use um, uh, Bob Rockwell on television was made because they didn't think Jeff Chandler would fit the part? Well, partially that, but really, Jeff was becoming a big movie star. That's what I thought. And the studio wanted him to do it, but he was very sentimental about the show and wanted to stay on. But they finally persuaded him that that was the thing to do. And here to give you the signal of the stroke of 12 is one of our most distinguished citizens and an honored guest of Club Jamboree. Here he is, your friend and mine, happy-go-lucky, gag-a-minute, Osgood Conklin! Osgood Conklin! Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for that charming introduction, Professor Young. That's him, all right. I have just time before the old year is dead to tell you lovely people that a funny thing happened to me on my way to the club tonight. A panhandler stopped me outside the door and said, Mister, I haven't had a bite all week. So I bit him. Oh, great. Madison's next principal will probably be Milton Berle. Now, when I give you the signal, let's get those noisemakers going and really let her rip. There are only five seconds to go. Four, three, two, one. Maybe it was some of Mrs. Davis's fruit punch. <laughs> oh, gosh, Harriet, your dad's entitled to have a little fun once in a while. After all, people are only human. Well, it is New Year's Eve. It sure is. And it's midnight, too, Harriet. You know what that means? I guess so, Walter. Well, come on, I'm all puckered. <laughs> <laughs> Here goes, Harriet. Mr. Boynton, do you see the work that's going on in the next yard? Yes, I, I do, Miss Brooks. Although I must admit I'm a rather diffident person most of the time, I, I feel that this being New Year's Eve, I can take a certain liberty. Liberty? You can take shore leave. 
Ready if you are. I'm puckered, Mr. Boynton. I'm thirsty, Miss Brooks. Oh. <laughs> well, that's done it. If you'll forgive me, Mr. Boynton, I'm going to pour three glasses of water. Three? But who are the extra two for? You and me. We might as well be loaded as the way we are. <laughs> Jeff Chandler might not have been part of Our Miss Brooks on TV, but Eve Arden had her own issues with television. There was one point in the series on television where they tried to change the atmosphere a little bit, didn't they? They came to me and said, number one, they didn't want to take Dick Crenna into TV. Mm -hmm. They asked me to make tests with some boys, and I said, what for? And they said, for Walter Denton. I said, you're crazy. People know Dick, and they said he's too old. I said, but he doesn't look it. He doesn't sound it, and they'll love him. So they pressured me to make the test, and I said, I'll do it if you make a test of Dick, too. And there was no question after that. Then they came to me partway through and said, we're going to make a big change. Just keep you and Gail Gordon, that's all. And we're going to send you to Hollywood, and it's going to... I said, it's not going to work. And I bet I have my people back in three months. And I did. Mm-hmm. And it was a shame, but that spoiled it. They changed it from a uh, public school to a private school. And, yes. Uh, yes. From a high school to a grammar school. And it never and recovered yeah. from that. That was really the reason we went off the air, and it's a shame. Why did they change that? Why did they want to make the change? Well... We were caught in a game that is played, really, by an awful lot of TV producers and sponsors. When the time comes to renew, each one pretends that the sponsor and the network say, well, the show's ratings are going down a little, and it's not as good as it used to be. So then the creative people get very upset and they come and say, but we've got a great new idea, you know. And then they change it and it ruins the whole thing. Tune in Tuesday evening over most of these same stations and be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Railroad Hour. And here comes our star-studded show train. 
Tonight, the Association of American Railroads invites you to a review of some of the outstanding music from the Railroad Hour shows of 1950, starring Gordon McRae, his guest Lucille Norman, and the entire company. Our choir is under the direction of Norman Luboff, and the music is prepared and conducted by Carmen Dragon. This special New Year's Day program is brought to you by the American Railroads, the same railroads that bring you most of the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the fuel you burn and all the other things you use in your daily life. And now, here is our star, Gordon McRae. The Railroad Hour first came to ABC Airwaves on October 4th, 1948. Sponsored by American Railroads, they moved to NBC in the fall of 1949, becoming part of NBC's Monday Night of Music. Miller, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, folks, tonight is New Year's night. A time for looking back and a time for looking forward. During the past 52 weeks of Railroad Hours, we've had a great deal of mail from you telling us about your favorite shows. And so tonight, we're going to sing for you some of the songs you liked especially. We're starting off with a song from the very first Railroad Hour of 1950. The operetta was The Red Mill. The song, well, one of the jauntiest that ever came from the eloquent pen of Victor Herbert. Every day is Ladies' Day with me. <laughs> Radio Life suggested the program's dramatic side was weak, but the Railroad Hour was never truly about drama. Its main focus was the melodies. Composers like Gershwin, Jerome Kern, and Rodgers and Hammerstein were often featured. Martin Miller announced, and Carmen Dragon was the musical director. Gordon McRae was host and MC, flanked by leading ladies like Lucille Norman, Dorothy Kirsten, and Marion Bell. Every day is Ladies' Day with me. Unfortunately, by 1951, radio's popularity was waning. And that season, the Railroad Hour managed just an 8.3 rating. NBC's Monday Night of Music fell on its face. CBS had the top six rated Monday shows that season. In 1951, radio ratings were still high, but television had begun to make its mark. Although the Lux Radio Theater was still radio's highest-rated show, they lost more than 3 million listeners in the past three years. No radio shows had a rating higher than an 18. But this is New Year's Day, a day to look back and look towards tomorrow with good cheer and glad tidings. On January 1st, 1940, the New York World's Fair, aptly called the World of Tomorrow, was in the midst of a two-year run at Flushing Meadows Park in Queens, New York. Announcer Tony Marvin covered the fair while working for WNYC in 1939. I had covered the building of the fair as a special event feature for WNYC. I had then been moved up to director of news and spe well, special features and special events. And I climbed the uh, Trilon while it was being built with a pack transmitter on my back. 
not wearing a hard hat and trying to duck these red-hot rivets up a flying from one end of the tower to the other. But I really cover the construction of the World's Fair and the city buildings and all the magnificent edifices that were put up by the different countries. And of course, then after the fair opened, we covered every one of the opening ceremonies at the foreign pavilions, and then of course all the activities that were done at the uh, Court of Nations, as they called it. And then I emceed, or in those days you didn't call it emceeing, you were the announcer on a pop band show, the big dance bands. Louis Prima, Bunny Berrigan, I think you brought yeah, up Ed. Glenn Gray, Gray, Ben Burney, and there are a couple of amusing stories. I took Louis Prima for a uh, few moments' respite during the afternoon performance and the evening performance, took him up on the parachute tower. And Louis's shoes fell off when he <laughs> the thing hit the top. <laughs> and he changed color slightly, and he vowed he would never go up on the parachute tower again. How busy were you at your busiest, as far as being... Course, I you, think you I had counted one mix. week, I did 20 shows mm. in one capacity or another. I was finally, in the late 50s, or middle 50s, I guess, I was involved in the production, direction, acting, whatever, on five weekly series. My desk at CBS looked like a joke. I was doing the Harris show as an actor. I was producing and directing suspense. I was producing, directing editing, writing openings and closings, and co-starring in On Stage. I was producing and directing Broadway's My Beat, and I was producing, directing, and writing the openings and closings and editing Crime Classics. And at one point, CBS had three of those shows on back-to-back on Wednesday night. And by taping parts of this one and sections of that one, because you couldn't record the music, music had to be live and had to be put in when you went on the air. And having adjoining studios, one and two, with the old CBS, I was able to do it. I was on the air. I had a show on the air from 5.30 to 6. I had a show on the air from 6 to 6.30. And I had a show on the air from 6.30 to 7. I mean, to network feed. Some of them... Uh, it was Elliot Lewis night on CBS. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, there's no reason for that. It was just silly. But that's just the way the, the scheduling yeah. happened. By the 1952-53 season, radio audiences were leaving in droves. The networks were still willing to invest resources in the medium. Radio was also being left to radio people, which allowed for creative growth. When I started on the Silver Theater show as an actor on CBS on Sunday afternoon, Glenn Hall Taylor was the producer and director and True Boardman was the head writer on the show. And the first show starred Jimmy Stewart and Russell and Russell. And they needed somebody who could say in tempo with a music score and a phonograph sound effects record, you better go back, you better go back, you better go back, you better go back, and do it in tempo and keep doing it. 
True and Glenn Hall asked me if I could do it, and I could, so I got the job. I always found acting boring, because there's not enough to do. You do it, and then you're finished, and now what are you going to do, you know? They would go back to the office to do rewrites and changes and all that kind of stuff. So I would go into the booth and listen when I wasn't on in the scene, and then I'd go back to the office and they'd let me sit there with them when they were doing rewrites and cuts. So I got interested in all of it, and when I started working on suspense, Spear asked me, because I was writing suspense in addition to acting on it, I wrote some of them, and I edited a great many of them. And Spear had to go away and he asked me if I wanted to direct it, and I said, yeah, sure. So I directed one, and then the CBS people wanted to do Broadway's My Beat, which had been on in the East. They wanted to move it out here, and they needed a producer-director. More to find David Friedkin were going to write it. And we cooked up the idea of scoring it with a jazz orchestra and got Sandy Courage for that. I all of a sudden was directing a show every week. And from that, I did my own series on stage. Finally, wasn't acting at all anymore, except on, on stage and doing Remley. Every I didn't have time. Transcribed. Kathy and Elliot Lewis, on stage. On Thursday, January 1st, 1953, at 8.30 p.m., Kathy and Elliot Lewis, known as Mr. and Mrs. Radio, debuted a new dramatic anthology program over CBS Airwaves called On Stage. Kathy Lewis, Elliot Lewis, two of the most distinguished names in radio, opening tonight in their own theater, starring in a repertory of stories of their own and your choosing. Radio's foremost players in radio's foremost plays. Drama, comedy, adventure, mystery, melodrama. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elliot Lewis. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. Tonight is our opening night, and tonight is the first day of the new year, so we're going to do a comedy for you to start our new series. Something like a spray of confetti to go with the season. A story about a young man and his wife in 1953. Nice people. Not rich, not poor. Happy with each other. You know, nice. So, tonight we present String Bow Tie by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. My name in the play is Gerson Hapsmith. And I'm Laurie Hapsmith. And we're married and we live in New York. The opening scene has to do with Lori. She's got a seat on the 7th Avenue subway. It's New Year's Eve afternoon and she's on her way home from work. At the moment, she's upset because the seated man next to her is working the crossword puzzle and doesn't know the three-letter word for the web-footed diving bird of the Arctic Sea. Lori knows. Auk. Hmm? 16 down. It's Auk. A-U-K. Now extinct. It's very cold. On stage came during radio's last hurrah. The big money was quickly leaving, but agencies and producers still had radio budgets because radio still had an audience. For example, Jack Benny, who'd made his TV debut on CBS in 1949, was still in five million radio homes each Sunday evening in 1953. You crowded, dear? No, not at all. To get the show off the ground, the Lewis's tabbed some of the best writers in radio. Like Morton Fine, 
David Freakin, and E. Jack Newman. I want to talk to you a bit about the Kathy and Elliot Lewis show on stage. Uh, when you think of that series, which I think is one of the absolute high points of radio, how do you remember that series? Very fondly, of course. And it was in really the uh, waning days of radio. Where? See, the one between the termite service and the cheese crackers? Zowie. Oh, you mean the picture of the man in the string bow tie sitting at the piano? Schizo. Because television was obviously going to move in and move in big and supplant radio drama as we knew it. But in that year and that time, and particularly with on stage, radio really grew up and put on long pants. Let me know when we get to Times Square. Yesterday I ended up in Bronx Park just staring at him. That fellow's a real beauty. You really think so, huh? Just me? It became very adult and very sophisticated and very satisfying. I was lucky enough to write a dozen or so of the on stage with Kathy and Elliot Lewis. Really, it was a free ball. Smoldering, written all over him. He's my husband. Ah, honest. Stories would be rooted in powerful male-female situations, with two characters of equal strength being the main goal. They used a mix of classic and original tales, cutting across all dramatic disciplines with mysteries, adventures, melodramas, satires, and comedy. The goal was to make each character as close to life as possible. This debut episode was a comedy thriller called The Stringbow Tie. Elliot was a magnificent producer and director and performer. I could discuss dramatically very mature subjects and very mature themes. And I did, with no holds barred. And it was a marvelous experience for me as a writer, and I'll, I'll never regret the time and effort I put into it. with Lemke. Come here, Laurie. Hi. I want to tell you something, lover. What? It happened again. Today. On the subway? Mm-hmm. Did I have a big house? Mobbed. Then there was a woman who sat next to me. Blonde? Brunette? Both. Oh. Honey, you're the heartbeat of the subway circuit. You know what that woman said about your picture? Zowie. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. Tell me the half of it. Mr. Honeywell at the agency called me in and said they formed a fan club in Bronx Park. Do me a favor, Gerson. Sure. Kiss me. Anytime. Oh. Five million quickening pulses in New York. Gerson, you're my man. Yeah, baby. It occurred to me years later how many shows we did and what kind of writing we had and the kind of chances that we took. It's crazy the way it happened. Four years ago when the model didn't show up, Mr. Honeywell tapped me for the job, pulled me away from my typewriter, thrust a string bow tie in my hand. And said, this is it, Hapsmith. No. I still can't believe we did I suppose if I were given the opportunity, I'd do the same thing again. It seems to me that that's the kind of, if you're going to do an anthology, which that was, that's the kind of anthology to do. You do a little bit of everything. You take all kinds of chances. Remember the one we did called Conrad in Quest of His Youth? There was a magnificent show. Fred Steiner did music for it. Just lovely, lovely love story. Ejac wrote, I don't know, what, a dozen fantastic original stories. Shirley Gordon did such good stuff. 
She did a thing called Call Me a Cab. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. She did a lot of good stuff. To all of New York, the man in this string bow tie is mine. Now, listen, baby, I... But the woman behind the man who quickens the pulses is me. No, but baby... You just run along, slip into that bow tie, Gerson. I don't even know how to tie it. Mr. Honeywell tied it for me. Anything Honeywell can do for you, I can do. Mr. Honeywell. Big deal. You really want me to? Please. Baby, you don't have to say please to me. Gerson, just go get the bow tie. Kathy was a consummate actress, of course, beautiful woman. As I recall her, she was very gracious, kind, and very, very competent in her profession. I remember she made a, uh, aside from her enormous success as a radio actress, she was also on a long-run television show, uh, My Friend Irma. Yeah, radio and TV. I always liked Kathy and always got along with her very well. I can't say that happened with every actress I've worked with since. <laughs> well, let me finish, will you? Sorry. Crowd of people, and I feel like we're alone, Laurie. Hurtling through space, alone. Pardon me, please. Could I just squeeze in here, please? Well, here, I'll get up. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. You just sit there. I'll squeeze in between you. Mm -hmm. You mind scooching over a little, madam? Mm. <laughs> there we are. Gerson? I'm over here, Laurie. Mister. Yeah? Your skirts, though, aren't you? <laughs> when you got on, I told my girlfriend Janice, there's skirts, though, the man in the string bow tie. <laughs> and Janice said to me, she said, every time you get on the subway, you start dreaming. Oh, really? <laughs> Janice! Janice! It's him! <laughs> Unfortunately, Wait, Janice. the program failed to attract much of a rating or a sponsor and was canceled after the September 30th, 1954 broadcast. I'm going to feel silly saying it, but I'm going to say it. This man is mine. Ha, 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 ha. Put your money where your mouth is, madam. Ask him. Hey, Scherzo, are you hurt? She's my wife. Well, if she is your wife, pray tell, who are those four girls on the advertisement who are scattered beneath your piano? Well, they're models, that's all. Just girls. Well, that's all I am. Honest. Young lady. Yes, madam. Beat it. Blow. Go tell Janice she wants you. Look, madam. You might be married to him and all, but I'd like to explain the facts of life to you. The minute he got up in that advertisement, he belonged to humanity, female type. <laughs> Can I fix your bow tie, Sketcher? Uh, yes, go right ahead. Here's where we get off, Gerson. No, the lady just wanted... You belong to humanity, Gerson, and they're waiting for you up there. Let's hurry before the door slams in your face. <laughs> I think there's an unfortunate thing in the entertainment business. If it's properly done, whatever it is, what you do, what I do, what Jack does, if it's properly done, it looks to somebody on the outside like, well, that's nothing to it. You know, I can do that. I just turn on the machine and hold a microphone in the fellow's face and ask some questions. Great. But there's more to it than that. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have come in in the history of the entertainment business, from the Greeks, I suppose, where somebody said, well, he thinks he can write a play. Where do you see what I write? <laughs> What's so great about the frauds? I'll write a play called The Gypsies or whatever. You know, Well, there's a talent to it. So a lot of things get screwed up, unfortunately. The time that we were discussing earlier in the early 1950s when radio suddenly grew up, just as it was dying, do you 
foresee a future at all for radio drama because it has always impressed me that way too that right about 1953 radio really came of age and became a legitimate art form just as its demise came along well I saw it sadly enough just dying uh, you know like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn program after program were taken off the air and suddenly there was you know there was no radio drama at all though there were a couple of attempts but they didn't mount anything finally there was just nothing uh, left in, as far as radio drama went it was a sad thing uh, because I, I do think it had finally grown up and I hated to see it die This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? What gazpacho is supposed to be served cold? Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. The success of any series has to do with the charisma that the leading character has. You can give it the best stories and the best production in the world and the best support in the world and if the guy or the gal does not have it it isn't going to make it and it can get by with a minimum of all of those things if whoever it is has the lead causes people to say hey come on let's tune in on old so-and-so tonight my god i sure like to see how he's going to whip all those bad guys you know it's charisma that's all and i can't define it i don't know what it is what causes it what causes the lack of it. Some people have it, some people don't, that's all. Please don't think that I'm uh, an egomaniac. I, I, I stand back and look at this. I've been on the other side for so long that I can evaluate quite clearly without being involved emotionally or ego-wise. There was great character development. God, we used to go in with 11-page uh, scripts. Take all the time in the world to do this. And the production values of really paying attention to sound effects and playing them for what they are realistically. And John's contribution of uh, taking an incident and making it a story instead of doing a full-fledged, full-blown opening, closing with the middle and uh, contrapuntal characterizations. It was uh, the story of a man, basically, or if it wasn't that man, then it was somebody else that that man was involved with very deeply. In the field of adventure, one new program has caused more comment and excitement in recent weeks than any entertainment series in many seasons. 
Variety. In their review, use such words as first-rate, high-level, suspense, and excitement. These words have not been confined to trade papers. Popular magazines and newspapers have added their own accolades. For here is a mature, adult, blazing Western that tops them all. CBS Radio is proud to present this brief segment of Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. One show able to hold a core audience deep into the 1950s was CBS's Gunsmoke, perhaps the greatest Western drama in radio history. Gunsmoke, the story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. It was the product of two years of radio development by director Norman MacDonald and writer John Meston, beginning in mid-1950. I don't want a shotgun. Messman and I wanted to do a series called Jeff Spain, which was an offshoot of the romance episode called Pagosa of mid-1951. Better stay here then, Chester. This make me a coward, Mr. Dillon? How do you feel? And we approached CBS management with it, but they said no, they were developing a, a Western called Gunsmoke. Harry Ackerman had the title, and he had the writers, and he had the cast in mind. They made uh, two, if I remember correctly, two audition discs with two well-known radio actors, but neither were successful, neither got on the air. Well, despite further urgings, we we couldn't move the... uh, CBS executives yeah, to, to put the show on. McDonald was simultaneously directing CBS's high anthology series Escape. He begun there as an assistant to William N. Robeson. It was here the core of what would become the Gunsmoke radio cast began to take shape, as William Robeson remembered. Well, Escape was an anthology show, and the truly brilliant thinking of show business at the time, since suspense was such a success, why not another show of the same kind? So Escape was pretty darn close to suspense, and very often we used the same material. The assistant director, who was Norman MacDonald for most of the Escape series, when I was doing it, and who subsequently succeeded me as director on it for a while, the assistant director's function was to time the rehearsals, to time the show, and while on the air, advise the director how he was running, fast or slow, etc., and generally to take care of the mechanical end of the production. I used the the finest actors in Hollywood. Jack Webb, who went on to become Sergeant Friday in Dragnet. Jeff Corey used to do a lot of things. Ben Wright, 
An Englishman born in Brooklyn who had a magnificent English accent did many, many wonderful performances. Sam Edwards, a wonderful Texas accent and an authentic one. You'd always get a Texas accent from these actors, but some of them weren't authentic. Jeff Chandler, the late Jeff Chandler, was one of our regulars. John Daner, who was still very active in television. Then there was Parley Bear, who did much of the support work. Howard McNair was one of our absolutely invaluable support people. Georgia Ellis, of course, was one of our regulars, and Georgia became Kitty in Gunsmoke. And, of course, the man who came on and in deep tones said, want to get away from it all, want to escape, that man was Bill Conrad. In December of 1950, McDonnell and Meston teamed up for an escape episode called Wild Jack Rhett, which was followed by Pagosa on another CBS series, Romance, in 1951. Again, McDonnell approached CBS about an adult Western series. His timing was right. CBS had just canceled the Robeson spy series called Operation Underground. We had a week's notice to put a show together and get it on the air. And in that week, we had to find a writer, star, have a theme, a Gunsmoke theme composed. So it was a busy week. We got Walter Brown Newman to come in, one of the better writers in town. We gave him an acetate disc of Pagosa and I believe of Wild Jack Rhett and said this is the style, this is the color, this is the feel. Laid out no other guidelines except told him how we felt Matt Dillon should be written and the kind of character he was and sent Walter away. That was on a Monday. There remained the problem, of course, the enormous problem of finding a star CBS Executives, of course, were hoping for a big name. I do remember that we there was a young actor from Pasadena who uh, had some name at that time, Robert Stack. If I remember correctly, Ray Burr auditioned. By the early 1950s, Bill Conrad was one of radio's busiest men. I think when they started casting for it, somebody said, Good Christ, let's don't get Bill Conrad. We're up to you-know-where with Bill Conrad. So they did not get Bill Conrad. They auditioned everybody in town. And as a last resort, they called me and said, okay, we give up. Come on in. <laughs> and I went in and uh, uh, read about two lines. And they said, okay, thank you. And I walked out. And the next day they called me and said, you have the job. I think Meston and I were more enthusiastic about Conrad than the executives because Bill was considered a heavy at that time. He'd just finished The Killers in feature pictures, and everybody considered him a heavy. And, of course, he was a marvelous heavy. The CBS executives were a little concerned that William Conrad, heavy extraordinaire, would be playing our lead, Matt Dillon. The other characters were not set, and no contracts were drawn, because nobody had yet decided who would be playing with Bill. It just developed that... Howard McNair played the doctor, who became a running character. Harley Bear played Chester, who became a running character. Georgia Ellis was in one of the first shows, but Kitty wasn't actually invented until, uh, oh, perhaps eight or ten shows into the series. The series premiered on April 26, 1952, and although sponsorship dollars were quickly being shifted to television, Gunsmoke found sponsorship, first with Post Toasty Cereal, and then with Liggett and Myers Tobacco in 1954. Billy the Kid was the first show by Walter Brown Newman. Received 
good reports, but nobody was quite sure upstairs whether we had a hit or a miss because our leading man didn't sound like a leading man. Bill Conrad was not playing Matt as a warm, understanding, paternal figure whatsoever. Les Crutchfield, a writer who was to become one of the solid contributors to Gunsmoke, writing, oh, possibly 70 or 80 scripts. Les wrote a writer named Herb Purdom, Joe Murcott, Lou Houston, Tony Ellis, a cross-section of the better writers in town. But each week it meant that Meston had to do a little editing and a little fixing and a little adjusting on the script. And after about a year, John said that he didn't quite know why he was working this hard and not having the fun of writing them himself. So he left CBS, left an extraordinarily good job with a great deal of promise, as a matter of fact, on what was really a gamble, because who knew how long Gunsmoke would go. So for the next three or four years, until the television series started, John wrote basically every Gunsmoke, writing anywhere between 40 and 52 scripts a year. So he was a busy man. Chester and I were about 30 miles from Dodge when we ran into the Buffalo Hunters camp. We'd been holed up for two days in a deserted sod hut, taking cover from one of the worst blizzards in years. But it was over now, and a warm, dry Chinook blew out of the west, down off the Rockies and across the prairie into Kansas. It was Chester who saw the camp first, a pile of buffalo hides half covered by snow, and the skeleton of a wagon, its canvas torn and shredded by the blizzard. The camp was silent as we rode up. We got on. By the time this episode, Puckett's New Year, aired on January 1st, 1956, Gunsmoke was on Sundays at 6.30 p.m. with a repeat broadcast the following Saturday at 12.30 p.m. They ain't nary a soul here, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, maybe the men got caught out on the prairie when the blizzard hit and couldn't get back. It sure does look that way. I don't know how that team is still alive with nothing but that wagon for protection. They don't look none too lively. Uh, you sure can't blame them. Get your hands up. What? Both of you. What? You better do what the old man says, Chester. He was hiding in the wagon. Come over here. Closer. This your camp, mister? Of course it's my camp. Now you two drop them guns. Now we got our hands up, isn't that enough? You do what I say. I ain't taking no chances. I ain't going to get left here again. Left? You're going to hitch up that team and you're going to take me into Dodge. You ain't running off like Jed Lorner. Who's Jed Lorner? He's my skinner. Oh, why did he leave you? Well, he seen that blizzard coming and he didn't want to take any chances, so he rode off. He's probably been in Dodge all the time, warm and cozy. Oh, why didn't you go with him? I twisted my leg and my foot so I can't ride a horse, that's why. Larner figured driving a wagon be too slow. You mean he left you here to freeze? Yeah, and I'll kill him when I find him. And I'll kill you if you don't drive me to Dodge. Now, here, he's a U.S. Marshal, mister. He ain't gonna leave you out here. Uh, Marshal? Yeah, that's right. Now, why don't you put down that rifle and tell us who you are? Well, all right. My name's Ira Pocket, Marshal. I'm usually up north following the Republican herd, but I come south this year. I'm getting old, and I thought it'd be warmer down here. You sure made a mistake about that, didn't you? You'll get me into Dodge, won't you? Sure, of course we will. Foot I trusted. I don't feel nothing in it. Must be froze. Huh? 
Well, it could be. I'll kill Jed Lorner for this. You forget about that, Puckett. I'm not taking you back to Dodge just so you can hang. I'll forget it. Till I find him. Marshal Dillon and his deputy, Chester, take Puckett into town, where the doc has to remove most of his foot. Against his wishes, he becomes one of the townsfolk. Marshal Dillon later finds Puckett Skinner. Dillon gets him to leave town before Puckett can murder him, saving Puckett from a hangman's noose. Despite the marshal, Puckett attempts to rob the city bank. No one is hurt, and the money is returned when Dillon thwarts the plan. He temporarily throws Puckett in jail while he can decide what to do with him. You know, it seems to me everybody treats you pretty well. Yeah, everybody but Jed Larner. That's true. But Chester and I brought you in. Doc saved your life. I kept you from hanging, and if I hadn't outsmarted you at the bank, you'd probably be lying dead somewhere now. You know, it seems to me everybody's gone to a lot of trouble for an old man full of a lot of foolish pride. What do you think? I've been thinking, Marshal. Sitting here thinking. You know what? You're right. But it's too late now. No, it isn't, Iron. What? I explained everything to Mr. Bodkin at the bank, and he's willing to drop any charges against you. But on one condition. What's that? Well, to be honest with you, it was my idea, but Mr. Bodkin agreed. You get a job here and quit being so doggone ornery. Otherwise, you're going to go to jail. Oh, what could I do with this crippled foot? Well, seeing you're so handy with a shotgun, I think Jim Buck might hire you to ride messenger on the stage. You think so? Well, he told me he would. You, you, you went and saw him? And it doesn't take any walking, Ira. So, uh, how about it, huh? Well, I, I never had a job like that, but, uh. Man's got to make a change once in a while, lady. And, and it'll sure be a good way to start the new year. moment, our star, William Conrad. Unfortunately, in a fate often experienced by radio people, when Gunsmoke went to TV in 1955, none of the radio cast made the transition. Meston was kept on as the main writer. In the early years, the majority of the TV episodes were adapted from the radio scripts, often using identical scenes and identical dialogue. made with accuracy is more perfectly packed than any cigarette could ever be. The radio series would continue to air until June of 1961. But by then, major network radio drama in the United States was on its last leg. Yet they satisfy the most. You know, out on the high plains, they used to have a saying... Never argue with a mule, a cook, or a horse-and-buggy doctor. Well, next week, an Easterner who never heard that saying comes to Dodge. 
And uh, he makes the mistake of fighting with the wrong people. He nearly dies as a result of it. But uh, that was the West. Good night. Norman MacDonald and Parley Bear remembered the changing industry. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William It Conrad seems to me Matt that Dillon, in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and... You either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. I had an idea that there could be a, a sort of a female gun smoke, if you will, only modern. I went to Harry Ackerman and said that I thought if we could get Joan Fontaine to play the lead in a script I'd written, we could cut an audition record. That was in the days when we used 16-inch acetates. And it would be a thing of beauty, and everybody would be crazy about the whole thing. And, of course, it didn't work that way. Uh, Miss Fontaine did do the audition record, but it wasn't very good. My point, however, is that in the space of about a six-minute conversation in Harry Ackerman's office, I walked out with the knowledge that I could have a studio, an engineer, an orchestra, a recording session, a cast, and Miss Fontaine all agreed to in about five minutes. And it takes more than that to ride up in an elevator today to one of the executive's offices. By that time, we were recorded ahead, and we were all very grateful that we had enough shows recorded in the can, so to speak, that we did not know when we were doing our last one. I don't think it would have been a very enjoyable day for us to go in there knowing that this was it. It was kind of had. I missed five out of about 530, as a lot of shows have done now. I think we entered areas that Westerns, indeed, that radio shows had not entered before. There was a little of the psychological involved, and there were instances where sometimes right did not triumph, mm -hmm. as in the real world. And the thing about Gunsmoke, it became a labor of love for all of us. I know I still have a big library of Western fact and fiction mm -hmm. of that era. We were a pretty intact group there. We had the same director, the same assistant director, same script girl, the same engineer, the same sound crew. The music was the same, and uh, in addition to the four regulars, there probably were not more than 20 or 25 people 
They were used, it formed a pretty tight nucleus, a stock company as it were, for that and the show. I think that if we had been given just an outline, I think that Bill and Howard and Georgia and I and some of the regulars, I think we'd get a bad lib to show if... if it was that tight and that close? Yeah. You were so we got close to know to each it. other's uh -huh. timing so well, mm -hmm. anticipate each other's thoughts. And I remember little things like, well, Dylan had told Chester to put some wood on the fire and the sound of the logs going on there. And I went, <coughs> He said, well, get out of the smoke. <laughs> Just as an ad-lib, huh? <laughs> Green. He uh -huh. said, you should have got dry. And then we went on with whatever <laughs> we were doing. And things like that. There was an anecdote on Gunsmoke where um, the agency band was sitting up in the booth or something and there was a line in the script that said uh, where Matt Dillon was supposed to have said, well, we're lucky that didn't happen. And he, and he just went through the roof. He said, well, you can't have the word lucky on a show that's sponsored by Chesterfield. Right. That's the kind of thing we're talking about where agencies and sponsors and, and so forth just really should butt out and not be involved in We that. had one like that when I was producing the Lucy show at a Christmas show. Agency man is sitting there at the dress rehearsal. End of the Christmas show, a group of child singers arrive at the door to sing a carol. And Lucy opens the door and says, Oh, come in, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, lovely closing. And they go, Joy to the world. And the agency man went right through the roof. Because that was a competing product. Mm. Joy. Incredible. You know. So you're dealing with what we used to call the League of Frightened Men. Mm. All the people that are afraid to have opinions or, or have judgments or allow anybody else to have them for fear of rocking the boat. Well, that's a devastating uh, series of words. The League of Frightened. <laughs> you know, that's what we always used to call them. You know, I used to have a, a cup on my desk that, that I kept pencils in, and I had painted on it a famous Fred Allen line, which is... Where were you when the page was blank? on track two for the moon. <laughs> Rocket now leaving on track five for Mars, Venus, and Cucamonga. <laughs> Bonsoir, monsieur. Comment allez-vous? Oui, oui, Pierre Benny. We have been expecting you. We have a room for you in the sewer. <laughs> 
Next time on Breaking Walls, we examine an ingenious marketing and publicity campaign by one of radio's most forward-thinking comedians and find out why 275,000 people couldn't stand Jack Benny. Just in case you feel you want to hold her, you'll have a pocket. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning Network Radio Ratings, 1932-53 to by Jim Ramsberg And Edison Research's June of 2018 Podcast Consumer Statistics On the interview front, John Gibson, Tony Marvin, and Jan Minor were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. The full interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Jack Benny, Elliot Lewis, Eve Arden, and Parley Bear were with Chuck Shaden. His interviews from an over 39-year career can be listened to at speakingofradio.com. And Elliot Lewis, E. Jack Newman, and Eve Arden were with John Dunning for his 1980s 71K News Talk radio program from Denver. Some of his interviews can be found at otrrlibrary.org. Al Lewis was with Spurvac's Larry Gassman in 1998. For more information, please go to spurvac.com. And Norman McDonald, Bill Conrad, and William N. Robeson were interviewed for a five-part audio documentary on Gunsmoke in the early 1970s. Selected music featured in today's episode was Voodoo Dreams and Pyramid of the Sun by Les Baxter, Exotique Bossa Nova by Martin Denny, I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Orchestra, Auld Lang Syne by the Manhattan Strings, and Catch a Falling Star by Perry Como. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Check them out on iTunes or search for them on the interwebs. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Your troubles start multiplying And they just might it's easy to forget them without trying. Breaking Walls, episode number 88, will focus on the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest, which took place during the 1945-46 season of the Lucky Strike program. It will be available beginning February 1st, 2018 at thewallbreakers.com and everywhere you get a podcast, including Spotify. And by the way... This winter, you'll hear more information on our upcoming 1830s period piece audio drama called Burning Gotham. The teaser trailer for this series can be listened to at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, 
give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until February 1st, 2019, this has been Breaking Walls, episode number 87. My name is James Scully. Happy New Year, best wishes, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. It's easy to forget them without trying With just a pocket full of starlight Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Never let it fade away Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket Save it for a rainy day Save it for a rainy day Save it for a rain.